This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's guest speaker offers insights into the future of technology. Listen in as Cyrus Radfar and I discuss why the next big thing is often something no one sees. Why today's Generation G are the always-on generation. What is the future of being human and how privacy could be the deciding factor for data access. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back, everyone, to the Humane Podcast. I'm your host, David Jakobovich, and today I'm honored to have with me our guest speaker coming to us from Silicon Valley. His name is Cyrus Radfar, and he's the CEO and founding partner of V1 Worldwide. I discovered Cyrus reading a TechCrunch article on bias in AI and uh, learned a lot from what his thought leadership was. So, Cyrus, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, David. Yeah, it's super fun to always see everything going on in TechCrunch. And um, actually, that's one of the ways I got started in tech. Uh, I think almost 10 years ago, I was at one of the TechCrunch Disrupt conferences in New York. And since then, I got addicted to a lot of publications. So pretty neat to see your thought leadership out there. Thank you. I, I never think of it as thought leadership. I just love to start new conversations or hope to. That's a good platform to start getting people to listen. It all starts with that, right? It all starts with listening. You know, um, I uh, just were, you know, finishing and starting both the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020. And I've had a lot of trend reports coming up myself about 
future of fintech, future of education. And uh, I think trends are something that's very interesting, right? You can look at what's trendy, what is a trend, what is a signal, all these different parts of different identities. And what's your thoughts on future of trends or future of certain technologies? I think what I've seen a lot of is, at least historically, is we're really bad as humans of predicting when something, an outlier is coming. So I think that's one of the things that I'm always kind of aware of when I'm writing something down is that the next big thing that's going to change everything no one sees. It always kind of humbles everyone who tries to kind of take that guess. But I think for me right now, I really think what you're talking about and what we're talking about with the future of artificial intelligence is kind of going to drive a huge number of trends. You know, whether it's the future of work, the future of transport, all of those are kind of going to obviously change in the future of what it means to be human, not to get too philosophical so quickly. But to me, I find those questions kind of always back into something very big because I think at this point, we define ourselves so much by what we do if we're looking at work specifically. And, you know, the idea that, you know, we're going to be building something to either replace us or replace all the things that, you know, in the positive sense that we don't want to be doing with you know, machine intelligence, artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera. It's interesting because it kind of goes back to, to what are we going to worry about then? Not that there won't be worries. We know we fill it with something. So I kind of always fall into that kind of existential bummer of, of what's next. What's the new thing that we're going to complain about when everything's taken care of? But I may have gone off a deep end a little too soon. Eh? <laughs> I love it. I think we're going to be worrying about our dogs and cats FaceTiming each other. And I think that's where we'll be the future of. I was actually talking to someone about not necessarily FaceTime exactly, but that's that's an interesting a very, and very funny uh, visual. But there are folks I was speaking to, and I think I can, one of my old advisors at university, Thad Starner, he was a the inventor of Google Glass and, and considered one of the first cyborgs, I think by, I think it was Wired Magazine kind of coined it. Um, he was out of MIT Media Lab, but he he was working on using machine intelligence to understand dolphin language. I think it's so fascinating that and we're trying to kind of reverse engineer the way we learn in a way. And obviously machine learning has gone, is not necessarily a replica of the brain or an attempt to be that, but it's very, very interesting to imagine people talking to their dogs. Cause that's, that would, I mean, I don't know, maybe her would be a very different movie. If you could talk to your dog, people would just be, well, people already stay at home with their animals. So <laughs> who knows what's coming. You know, but I think what's consistent is whether we're thinking of dogs, cats, dolphins, right, all this research, it is about reverse engineering. We see all the products coming out, whether they're original or they're the next generation of the products. It's thinking, how do I make all these parts fit together as a whole? And a great speaker who I saw in New York recently is a venture capitalist, Brian Cohen, one of the big angels from New York. And he said, we don't invest in ideas. We invest in teams who have the capacity to execute and scale businesses. And I find that so fascinating because as we're looking into this new age of AI or fourth industrial revolution, the future of work is not just throw AI and see magic happen, but it's how do you integrate AI into a business to scale that? How do you integrate AI into work so that work is more futuristic? whatever that means, right? So, you know, more efficiency, more automation, human augmented. So that's how Brian sees it. And 
I think that's interesting, but what's your take on the future of work with AI? That's a big question. I guess the question is first you have to define what is work, right? So I think about it a lot and, and I've always loved what I do. I would do what I could, you know, my do for free. I'm kind of in that beautiful position where I, I, I love building things and then I get to do that. And I guess I hope a machine doesn't take that away from me. What I hope and I think is is most likely going to happen because it's the most likely business problem people are going to solve is taking the things we don't want to do off our plates. And I think, you know, in every job and every piece of work, there are those tasks. And I, I think automation, AI in general is is going to support and augment us so we can focus more on doing what we love. And I, I think that's more true for knowledge workers. Well, I guess it's good to split and say, what does AI do? Because it, it's very different how it's going to impact different types of work, right? The, the more manual work, the, you know, a, a lot of blue collar work. And it's very possible a lot of, a lot of that, we could, could see it being replaced. I don't see it happening in the next decade or two, but I definitely see, again, us augmenting humans with robotics, having robotic farms, which we're already seeing uh, vertical farming, which is mainly all automated is going to replace a lot of jobs. So I think, you know, on one side, we're going to be allowing people to do a lot more of what they want to do on the knowledge work and side. And I think we're also going to be removing a lot of work that people don't want to do. I think that always leaves the question of, so what are people who are doing those jobs going to do next? And I think, you know, there's plenty of McKinseyites that are trying to guess, but, you know, if you look back major transitions, the ATM, is a great example. People were so scared of the ATM destroying the whole banking industry. It actually increased the number of banks and workers because they basically were doing more transactions and they they it was the complete opposite of what people thought of like there was no more banks and no more tellers and all that sort of thing. So there's been examples where we've kind of taken out something and we basically improved the service. And that was basically it, it cut out some of the use less useful tasks. So in a long-winded way, I'd say I don't have a very clear answer, but I think in general, for most knowledge workers, life should be significantly easier and you'll have a lot more time focusing on the big problems. And I think we'll need to figure out, and I think it's more of a political and socioeconomic question of how do you structure a society where you don't necessarily need as many people working or you know, quote unquote working, doing the jobs people don't want to do today. Yeah, I think it is about knowledge workers. You know, that's what we've grown up to be, knowledge workers here in the United States. And even when we're looking today at areas in Asia Pacific and in Africa and the Middle East, a lot of these countries are supporting knowledge workers. So you have, for the first time, virtual assistants and social media managers and uh, DevOps teams, which are all being outsourced. And they're all going from no digital literacy to immediately capable to drive digital insights. And so the whole world is becoming knowledge workers. We have a billion plus people who are being lifted out of poverty from making under a dollar a day to now making living wages. And we see countries that formerly were not seen as tech leaders now becoming global superpowers like China and South Korea and Estonia and the Maldives and many of these countries. So I tend to agree with you as well that I think um, the McKinseyites will always say what the McKinseyites say. But, you know, when, when they say something like 60% of jobs are going away by 2030, you know, it's uh, I, uh, an opportunity. I'll make a tangent to to be one of the leaders for the March for Our Lives movement in the United States, you know, which is supporting advocacy on gun control. And 
you know, one of our big phrases was, you know, we call BS, right? Like we call BS on, on movements and things in Washington. And so similarly, when McKinsey says, oh, I think 60% of jobs are going up by 2030, I'm like, I call BS. Like, like, where is the facts? Like, how are you building these numbers? What actuaries, what data scientists are coming up with these metrics? And I tend to agree that I think knowledge workers will be augmented by this technology, which we're seeing today, right? I mean, you know, think about it. Just about 10 years ago, it was analytics, and then it was business intelligence, and now it was data science, and now it's data science with AI. It keeps evolving, right? But it's... uh, Yeah. I definitely think one thing to remember is that, like, a lot of these reports are based on uh, the job reports given out by the United States, the the government in the the U.S., and obviously worldwide, there's reports. and, And a lot of times what they're reporting on is the number of people with a given job title. And if you were trying to like, you know, we don't necessarily need, um, I'm forgetting the name of them even right now, but uh, the, we don't need payphone repairmen anymore, <laughs> for example. But we do have mobile phone operator repair people who are probably the same people. But that's a job that's lost. It doesn't exist anymore. If you look 30 years ago, like most of the jobs that we're all sitting in, there's no such thing as a podcaster. Not that that may be, maybe, I don't know if that's in the federal list, but there's so many different things that probably didn't exist and it replaces it. So, you know, we're kind of forgetting that like as we kind of, social media didn't exist <laughs> so, so 10 years ago or 12, well, 15 years ago, right? So the whole term is new. So the whole industry and everyone who claims to be in that industry, those are new jobs. And it was created by a, you know, a platform. I think similarly, Uber drivers, how many people are doing that now? Now that's a separate debate of whether there's, you know, the ethics and pricing and all that fun stuff. But that is, there are a lot of people driving cars who weren't driving cars before. So I guess the question of whether it's creating or destroying work is, it's hard to say, you know? I mean, what we know is pensions, as we used to know it, don't exist like they, you know, it's like that jobs are not like that anymore in the United States. But I think I generally tend to be pretty optimistic as much as I'm pessimistic about, you know, some pieces. I do think technologists and business in general, eventually, even if the intentions of the founders may not be good, like end up changing things a lot and constantly creating good new things like social media. Is it good or bad? Right. Like I've had this debate with people. Do you have have an opinion on where you feel on it? You obviously have to use it. You know, if we look at social media, I think the more connected you can be, the better. I mean, I've met so many connections, both friends and colleagues digitally that I never would have without Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, LinkedIn. It's brilliant. You know, sure, I've had my fair share of not so great experiences, as I think we all have on social media, including getting locked out of our accounts, identity stolen, all these factors. But for me, it's been the majority positive. The only other negative would be that maybe I spend too much time on it, but that's my own doing, my own choice, right? And I can I can work to change that behavior. What's your take on it? I mean, again, I, I think I, I'm really bad at answering questions that I should, I should say it depends on everything. I think the question comes back to what is... Is it good or bad for us to be seeing over the fence of our neighbors, like in, in a way that, I mean, I, I came from you know a relatively good upbringing, and but I can't imagine growing up today. I have a younger, a younger brother who's uh, sixteen years junior to me, and I'm kind of 
amazed of the world that he grew up in comparatively. He could he can compare himself to every kid on the planet and he could see it every day, whether it was on Instagram and Facebook, as he was coming into his own. And it's a really I, we we don't know what's gonna happen. I'm not I again, not a good or bad of whatever. It's gonna be both good and bad. It's gonna people may work harder. They may be more fit than they were because of all this, you know, competition, so to speak, out there that they, you know all these six pack abs and instant. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean all those all that's jive i think for me i find i find it really hard to pin is it is it good or bad it's definitely changing things a lot and it's to me it's fascinating as a society to imagine like there is no other time in human history where like you could go into the king's palace and see what their life was like and know that you were actually really really poor you used to just be poor and hang out with other poor people and that was that was great but like now kids really know their station in life comparatively. And it's not even their station. It's their station compared to a fake reality. Because that person who's on that throne, whether they're happy or not, is projecting true happiness and abundance, right? There's not many people who are, you know, trying to be the sad billionaire online. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, it's, I look at it and I try to figure out like, what's it going to do to our brains? Like, how are we going to be, are we going to be more or less human? Are we going to be more or less empathic? Are we going to care more or less for each other? Are we going to be more or less competitive because of that? And and I don't, I don't know the answer, but I think, I think the reality is we're going to live through seeing a generation very soon, like Gen Z that has completely been immersed in this thing that we created in garages, right? Like, and it's just kind of in garages and dorm rooms, so to speak. Right. And it's going to completely shape their brains. Like where their, their brains are different than ours. I, I don't actually know how old you are, but I would assume you're you didn't graduate yesterday or in college. So yeah, that to me, is, it blows my mind. I'm just excited to see. And I'm starting to right now work with folks who, you know, did, were born in like the 2000s, you know, interns and folks of that sort. And it's so interesting seeing how different they behave and how differently they look at technology and how much more control they have over it actually than I would have suspected. One of the most interesting things I find is that folks who've grown up with technology are better at shutting it off and they have better patterns than I think folks who are my age in their thirties and forties. Like we, we actually are more addicted than they are in a way It's more like natural to them and they use it more appropriately. You know, do you see that theme consistent with your brother as well? Like he's just using the technology more naturally. I think so. I mean, definitely like everyone I think is on their phone at the wrong time sometimes, but it's more of like, but I, I don't think, yeah, I, I just, I would say that I've, I've seen a lot more you know, I see, you know, the behavior of like coming in, you're in a social interaction, you flip your phone and put it on the table and things of those sort. And it comes, I think, very natural. They've, they've learned it because it's something that annoys their peers and friends. The, I think the issue with when you're talking about, you know, me with my brother or with anyone is, is when you're with family, like you may not care about that. But when you're with your friends and <laughs> you may actually be more appropriate, right? It, he's more comfortable kicking his feet up and just kind of disregarding us. But yeah, I, I think one of the things, you, you know, similarly, if you if you look at Uber and Lyft, like there's a, I was having a conversation, this kind of goes back to the future of work. I was like, I can't imagine, you know, taking orders from an app. But the fact is, is we've raised the whole generation to, to respond to apps more comfortably in a closed setting than they do to other humans who manage them. They're much, I think, I think in general, and this may be true for everyone now, where people are getting more comfortable to be managed by notifications and by timers and gamified rules than, than by person. There's, if you look at Uber or Lyft, their manager is an algorithm. And that to me is, is kind of fantastical that we've, we did that. And nobody really 
I don't say no one thinks about it, but I definitely think most people don't realize how big of a deal that is, is that a machine is telling humans, millions now, what to do, where to go, how to do their jobs, and how to do it better, and it's coaching them. And in the olden days, that job used to be called a manager. <laughs> and I think, you know, talk about just like job destruction, so to speak, you know, there's no one coordinating them anymore. So I, I think it's really fascinating that people are more comfortable this way. And and that's, again, the question is, is that good or bad or whatnot? And, and you know, if you're going to Mars, maybe it's great that you're more comfortable working with robots because that's who you're going to hang out with, <laughs> machines and like, you know, virtual worlds. And it's almost evolutionary that we're almost setting ourselves up for this world where we're more comfortable with our machines. And that's how we engage socially. And we're engaging through screens because we're almost, it's almost, we knew that this future was coming without it. It's predestined of sorts that, that we're going to have, you know, nine month rides to places where we're going to have to keep ourselves busy, <laughs> but um, I'm not too sure, but it, it is fascinating what's happening. It's really fascinating. Right. It's as if this future of work has changed us as this new generation that I coin it the always on generation. We're always being connected, whether it's through Slack or WhatsApp or Line or Kakao or WeChat or Telegram. The apps just go on and on. We are being connected. We're being driven by algorithms to make decisions that maybe we wouldn't choose by ourselves, but maybe it's more efficient and better. And Backing into something big, looking, as you mentioned before, looking at Mars, looking at self-driving, looking at hyperloops, the future of transport has the possibility to change the game fundamentally. No longer will we just be sending line and WhatsApp messages here on Earth, but we'll be sending WhatsApp voice messages between Mars and Earth. We'll be on a flight in the morning and be in Shanghai two hours later. Yeah, I mean, it's... I'm very excited. I, I have a two-year-old son. And when he was born, I was looking at my wife and I said, we're the first parents who may have to not worry about their kid dying. And she was obviously just had a baby and told me to shut up. But, <laughs> oh my goodness. but the reality, yeah, I mean, it, that was my first thought is, is, you know, I don't have to, I may not have to worry about that if everyone does things right, where in 50 years, we may be able to, if that singularity actually happens, or or we figure out how to you know, download ourselves into the machine. Yeah. I mean, talk about transport. <laughs> it's teleportation, right? That's, that's light speed transport right there. And I think, yeah, that's kind of sci-fi, but it's fun to think about. It's, I, I think, you know, when I was growing up, I'm, I'm, we're hitting 2020 and that, that's just such a, I remember I drew a comic book when I was probably in fourth grade and it was, well, I can't remember. It was called SciTech. It was, it was, I think it was SciTech 2000 actually, but then it was kind of set in 2020, which was like, you know, robots and cyborg arms and flying people and flying cars and not claiming to be at all. It was, we, and, and then you look at like, we're not moving as fast as we thought we would, but we are accelerating. So I am, I do believe that it is possible that, you know, the generations that are born today, like, you know, our children, to imagine that my child could be on Mars. And that's not a crazy thought because, you know, we're 20 years, 30 years away from getting there by some estimates. And, you know, he was, he's two, so he'll be, he'll be my age and people will be going to Mars starting. So I don't know. I think on earth, like the hyperloop and other things are, are interesting, but, but they haven't panned out uh, in, in the way that I initially thought they would mainly like, I did feel like I underestimated 
how they would be adopted by countries. I actually thought U.S. would be thought leaders in this, which I it's sad that we weren't. I think the, the fact that you know most of the hyperloops are not being built in the U.S., all the contracts are coming elsewhere. It, it's really sad. It is something that I think is should have been a U.S. led innovation. I mean, it was, it has been technically done in the U.S., but you know, and I think, but. I don't know. Have you have you been talking a lot about self-driving on your show? What are the thoughts that you're kind of hearing about? Like, where do your panelists sort of fall on when it's going to happen? I've had a few guests where we've talked about the different levels from level one to five and where we're at. And I think most guests think we're somewhere in that level two, three. You know, I know uh, there's been talks about four and five, but you can see a lot of these self-driving companies that have got aqua hire they're shut down because of running out of funding or the results haven't panned through and i thought it was so interesting i actually discussed it with one of my uh, professor colleagues and he studied at berkeley and stanford and and did that actually many many years ago i think in the 70s and 80s and he said back then there was all this hype and so much excitement they were actually drawing in parking lots by stanford these lines in the parking lots so that the cars could follow these white lines to self-drive, and they thought they were on the cusp of the breakthrough in the 80s. I mean, people were pouring their lives and their research into it. And here we are, almost 40 years later, right? And we're, we're still not there yet. So it's it's interesting when when you think of trends and you think of signals, how usually in the short term, we're not that great, right? It's usually a little bit further out. But in the long term, it's usually closer than we think. So I think it's interesting that you brought up, you know, the case of, you know, Mars travel, you know, some estimates put us there 2040, 2050, who knows, maybe 2025. I don't know. But, you know, even then it'll take us nine months to get there unless we have some some breakthrough like on The Expanse, that that great new Amazon, you know, USA Today show. I haven't had a chance to see that yet. I've heard great things about it. Would you recommend it? Absolutely recommend The Expanse. The new season comes out in uh, this month or next month. So it's a... Really exciting. and was just our commercial break. <laughs> Sponsored by The Expanse. No, no, just kidding. But, you know, yeah, when, when we look at the future of transport, you know, I think um, a lot more of the conversations I've been having is about last mile solutions. You know, last mile, whether it's, you know, scooters or the car movement or the future of cities and smart cities and the design of the city for that last mile. But I think the challenge about last mile and thinking about, self-driving, it's all focused on metropolitans, all focused on these big mega cities like New York City and San Francisco and Palo Alto. But what about the Midwest? What about all these areas with different roads and uncharted territories? I wonder how the future of transport will will help everyone else who seems to be the forgotten. Yeah, I, I think it's, I go back and forth of thinking, you know, that either we're going to forget or the fact that, you know, with faster travel and transport, more people will move away from cities. When I first heard of Hyperloop, I kind of imagined a world where cities would expand hundreds of miles outside of where they started. So, you know, San Francisco Bay Area could go out, you know, 40 to 100 miles out past, you know, I mean, over all the way towards Yosemite. And, you know, the New York DC whole thing is just one giant metro to me. It's, it's so I don't really, I think it's already happened over there with the support of, you know, the fast trains and, obviously highway system, but part of me, like, I, I go back and forth because it's, it's really hard to say like, do we really need all this transport as we move more virtually? Or are we just mm. going to say, screw it, I'm staying in my house and putting on my headset and I'll be at work. You know, like I don't need, if you look at folks like um, 
spatial AI uh, company based out of New York. They're kind of working with HoloLens to really kind of pioneer some new experiences. Um, I think Magic Leap is doing similarly in kind of, again, enterprise conferencing and VR with avatars. So I think I think there's some really interesting stuff there. And, and you know, I do believe the future is remote for a lot of companies. So it's really kind of important that we consider that it is significantly cheaper for companies. It's it's better for people to be at home. Like I, I've worked remotely for the last few years and it's it's completely changed my life in a lot of great ways. And I do think that, you know, I don't own a car. <laughs> I haven't owned one in, I don't know, nine, nine years. So, you know, all this cool technology to like travel around and fly around and, you know, it's questionable whether we need it, uh, not whether we need it, but whether it's going to be as, whether it is, is really going to connect us to these hubs basically. And then everyone moves out to the boonies or what we consider the boonies. Like, I think, I think that could be a really interesting, like kind of exodus from the cities actually. But that kind of reminds me of uh, that hunger games movie where like, there's this massive city in the sky and then these zones that goes out further and further until you're, that's a bit dark. So, but I mean, that's kind of where cities in the U.S. like Detroit could be going, right? I mean, there there is some reinvestment, some revitalization. But I think, like you say, Cyrus, the future is remote. I mean, whether it's Magic Leap or Spatial or any of these other AR, VR, XR, mixed reality systems. I mean, I can see the world uh, and that world might be 2020, right? Where myself and 10 of my other colleagues put on a VR glasses and we're in front of a virtual boardroom. Right. Having our meeting and, you know, we're still on our computer, but so I'm kind of more bullish in AR than VR, because if I put on the VR, I can't really type on my computer at the same time. I think it's a it's a interesting dynamic. But I think AR, I think both of us were big fans of these you know, spectacles and glasses. And I think AR could be a phenomenal complement to that. So I do think the future is remote. I mean, we, we see now even today so many startups that have just formed remote companies and whether they're successful or not, it ends up being about execution. And execution doesn't mean do you have to be in the same office in New York City or Silicon Valley? Or can you be in 10 countries on six time zones? Yeah, no, I definitely, I think you're, you're spot on. The, I definitely, you know, I still hear a lot of folks who are kind of, who dog remote and, and don't believe that it's possible to have the same dynamics. I definitely think, you know, there's a, especially in early stage companies in a hustle culture that's kind of really pervasive and that's really pushed where, you know, you need to, you need to work a lot to, to make it. And it's like the, a number of hours put in is going to mean whether you make it or not. And I think one of the slights that I've heard over and over with remote is, you know, if a person's in a desk, they're more efficient, but every single study I've ever seen and every, all my experience with remote workers is they're way more focused. They're not distracted. There's not as much disruption on day-to-day, you know, goals. They can focus and do what they need and then go on with their lives. Do they, do they functionally sit? I think the question is like, kind of goes back to what is work is sitting in a desk or being in the same, you know, latitude, longitude work, or is it the fact that you're creating output of value? And that's something that I wholeheartedly believe that I, I definitely think remote and partially speaking, you know, tooting my own horn because I'm much more efficient when I'm off campus. I think it's, I think it's really, I'd be able to get with it. And I think one of the biggest reasons why folks is, aren't comfortable with it is just 
is effectively almost insecurity of sorts where they would say it's a, it's a projection of, well, if I didn't have people looking on my shoulder, then I may not be working. Like if I was sitting at home, I would watch Netflix. You have to think, you know, for me, it's, I think that's, that's kind of part of, part of the underlying problem, which is I think a lot of the people who don't like remote are like, I don't like my work. Therefore, if I was at home, I would be doing something else. But for those who love what we do, I think wherever you are, I think it works out. Are you working remote yourself? I mean, obviously. Uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll work from an office, but uh, I think I work remote over half the time. And, uh, you know, for me, I can echo what you're saying, Cyrus, is that it's about getting into flow. And, you know, often in an office setting, you know, can't get into flow as much. But, you know, I think uh, I think that flexibility, I think that opportunity to, you know, have your space, to have your um, area that makes you feel complete, right, can get you more into flow. Uh, and whether that's that's a desk or that's just being in your neighborhood, you're part of a community, but the community is different. It's not the community in your workspace where you go somewhere to work and then you come back home. But for me, what I've noticed is I've gotten to know my community better by working remote. I get to know not just the places I dine and and work out and and see, but I also get to, you know, experience the different businesses that I get to partner with. I think it's more exciting. And I, and I think it's it's what you make of it. You know, remote work with internet going to fiber, where I'm at, my internet is 1.5 gigabytes per second. That's what I'm getting on Ethernet for my laptop. And that's mind-blowing. You know, when I'm at the office, it's like 50 megabytes. So I can't even record a podcast. I mean, it's it's incredible. So for me, it's, it's actually by necessity that I need to be remote and I enjoy it. So I think that's possible. Who's your provider, if you don't mind me? Uh, I'm on Verizon. Ver- Verizon Fios. This episode's brought to you by Verizon Fios. You got two plug-in <laughs> plugs, yeah. I definitely need to try to figure out how to upgrade. I don't think my building is actually able to upgrade right now because I'm, I'm in a building from 1902, I think. You still never know. You know, I was in an older building in the New York area and they started putting fiber in. It might be the density of New York City that now fiber is everywhere. So it connects even to older buildings. But you could probably, you know, check, see if they have fiber because that's the core, right? It's like how how big are those tubes to get those wires in to get that bandwidth? You know, fortunately, I'm in a newer building now. So it's all new buildings are fiber, right? So. For, yeah, for those who can't see, like I can, he's a, he's in a, it's the giant castle. He's in a giant castle on a throne. There is gold everywhere. And huge, I'm an evil king. Huge, huge pipes of fiber all surrounding him. It kind of looks like Star Trek designed by Donald Trump. You mean Game of Thrones? Oh, that's <laughs> true. That's true. I have the gold. I was thinking gold, gold pipes. Yeah. Wow, oh, it feels like a church, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I'll give everyone a new image of, of where you're at. We'll have an Instagram photo going later on so yeah. everyone could be more addicted to the social media. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. I, I definitely think, to be honest, bandwidth is it's a huge hindrance. And I, I actually think it's it's as I've built remote teams in different countries, like I've added, you know, bandwidth tests to my interview process to verify they have the right things and, and I've asked people to upgrade before they take a job because they don't have the right bandwidth. And so I've worked with folks who have who have to get multiple internet providers because their country doesn't support telecoms well. It's very interesting because you know you can see how these very macro decisions can completely impact. At this point now, like you can hire from any country in the world if you're effectively willing or they're willing to work in the right time zone. 
and it, and it's I just think it's fantastic. I mean, I I could remember on many days where you know I'd wake up and be talking to someone in you know Bangladesh, then India, and then you know hanging out and having kind of a lunch conversation, well, lunch my time with someone who was having having a beer in in London, and it's just I it takes me every every once in a while like this moment you can you can sit back and kind of just be marvel at it and be like wow this is incredible and the fact that we get so frustrated so frustrated when we have a problem connecting mobile phone to mobile phone like via zoom video to a person's car in pakistan (laughs) i had a meeting and someone called in for a stand-up and he called in from pakistan from an uber and i was just blown away like you can't the story is just couldn't have existed just five ten years ago like from a you know, mobile device. I, I was just, and there was 10 other people in the room and we were all kind of chatting and there wasn't a person in the same city. It's, you know, talk about teleportation. <laughs> so it's pretty incredible. You know, we have all these countries now that are unwired countries, right? Looking at what's going on in Asia Pacific and Africa. I mean, no longer do you have fiber laid underneath the roads or even all this telephonic communication connected by wires above, but it's all spectrum. It's all, all this bandwidth that's enabling uh, this fast communication. And and some of that could even be attributed to the rise of satellite internet. We're seeing from companies like SpaceX and Virgin and others in the space that who knows, there's going to be what soon thousands of these satellites all over the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of baffled by how quickly everything turned. Um, I, I feel like I was woke up one day and then boom, Elon Musk is going to launch 6,000 or so satellites into, into orbit. And, and he's, he's claiming it's going to, blanket the earth with low cost internet. I, I can't imagine what every telecom in the U S was thinking at that point beyond, let me call my regulator and figure out how to stop them. Let me figure out how to add something. I think it's, it's really, really amazing how one, how quickly it's happened. And, and two, how little we understand how much it's going to impact so many people who don't actually have broadband. And in, in the U S alone, there's people all over the country in, in rural areas who do not have broadband, which is unfathomable to me. I, I went to Africa for a wedding and I had to leave the country because I was so addicted to Wi-Fi and I couldn't get it. So I actually had to work. So I had to leave. But this is very similar. I mean, from a core need now to do work, to do things as, as it was to like get water. And, you know, this is the last time that we had to do a huge upgrade to the infrastructure was you know, the new deal with the Tennessee Valley Authority. So, you know, I think we have a lot of really interesting things and disruptions coming with that and then 5G similarly coming out. And I think Apple, I've heard whispers that it's coming out next in the 2020 iPhone. But yeah, so it was super cool. You know, I I actually upgraded my phone from the iPhone 8 to the Samsung Galaxy S10 Plus and the internet is so much faster. And I thought for a second, I said, wow, could it really be that the bands, the internet spectrum is that much better in this new phone? Because I'm still on Sprint, which is my mobile provider. But Perhaps maybe it's the processing unit. Perhaps it's uh, all the cores. You know, I'm not fully certain, but I was so surprised it was getting so much better signal. And, you know, for me, that just goes back to, I think, our whole conversation about the unwired world. You know, this is not, I'm not taking an Ethernet cord and plugging it into my phone to get on the internet, right? It's, you know, an unwired world. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's, I, I feel really lucky. I don't know. What was your first computer? What was your first computing device? Oh, it was some NES device. Like a, like a Nintendo NES? 
Yeah, it was like an older Nintendo, and then I was playing with uh, one of these Windows NT computers. Okay, so that's that's yeah. So I'm, I may be older than you, but I, my first computer was a my first one I remember was a PC Junior. I had one of those really. I didn't have one at home, but at school we had those the, the Apple, the Mac, you know, classic. And they always crashed. Uh, it was it was such a beautiful computer. I still remember. It was. I learned, I like the I learned translucent screens. I, le- I learned yeah. a program on that one. No, I'm talking before that one, before the translucent screens, the original, the original. Oh, the nice, uh, the one that got sunburned, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. But I think it's, I feel very lucky that I got to see that transition. I, I my wife's grandmother has lived since is is 95 and i I can't even imagine she now uses and she can use instagram so i mean the the number of hops that she's gone through both of watching the telephone really like really take over completely and i mean she was very young for that and then television radio and television the rise of like the internet and and and, you know whatever wired telecommunications and then unwired communications i i it's crazy the perspective that, that folks have um, who are still living. Yeah, so so for everything we're talking about today, it's been great to learn about data and it's all these devices. And I can't wait to see when we're 80 and 90 years old, you know, what are we going to be using? And perhaps even we will live forever. Uh, that might be a far stretch, but we'll have to see, of course, where the technology goes. But I think more in the near term, generally, you know, better predictions. So as we're in this new year that's kicking off, you know, 2020, uh, it's always fun to talk about themes and trends and signals and and where you see things are going for the year. So love to hear, uh, Cyrus, your take on it. What's some of your 2020 predictions in tech? Oh, wow. I think my biggest prediction while well, it's less of a prediction and more of the the thing I'd say to look out for is 5G and what and asking the, yourself the question is what does this enable that wasn't possible before? If you look back and say you know what brought Uber to the world, it is that question that you know Garrett Camp asked, which is well now I have a map in my phone that can tra- has GPS at any time. What can I do now that I can never do before? I think with 5G, there's going to be a very smart group of people somewhere who sees something that we all don't see yet. And my prediction is that we're all going to be very surprised more in 2021 when we actually figure out what they're building in 2020 because of this new enabling technology. Amazing. So uh, no, I was saying, um, yeah, so we're moving to an unwired world and it's not just in Asia and Africa, but very quickly to the United States. We're seeing the VR technology where uh, pretty much soon, maybe we'll be living in ready player zero, right? A ready player one will be in this this new world. And uh, I'm hopeful as well for that. You know, I think my big predictions as we're moving to 2020 mostly comes around seamless experiences. We're going to be more seamless with integrations for uh, real-time data, perhaps. Maybe that's through the 5G, some of the applications, or more seamless computer vision, perhaps, with some of these uh, applications, whether it's getting to self-driving cars, that roadmap, or, you know, getting to consumer applications that can see things for you or read text for you or do it more real time. So I'm hopeful, uh, just as you are, that 5G will get us in that direction. And let's see where that takes us in 2020. So thanks so much for being with us, for being a human and for being with us on the Humane Podcast, Cyrus. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, humans. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and if you like Humane, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Luminary. Thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode. New releases are every Tuesday. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.